From Michigan Radio, this is It's Just Politics. I'm Zoe Clark. Michigan lawmakers have now repealed part of the state's right-to-work law. Governor Whitmer says she'll sign the bills. I have made a promise to restore workers' rights in Michigan. I fought against the creation of this barrier in the first place. Right to work was passed with so much controversy 10 years ago when Republicans were in charge at the state capitol. With Democrats taking majority this year, they made the repeal one of their top priorities. With this repeal, we are making a future for our state's workers, creating opportunity for the next generation of Michigan families, and stating clearly that we are restoring the union promise That was Democratic Senator Darren Camilleri earlier this week. Republicans, not surprisingly, are not happy. Republican Minority Leader Eric Nesbitt. This is about competing and winning in the 21st century. This is why more states are going to become right-to-work states and continue to be not, you know, there's a reason why this is the first state in 60 years that's working to repeal right-to-work. So what does this really mean for Michigan's economy and Michigan workers? Simon Schuster is here. He's a reporter with MLive out this week with a new piece titled Michigan's Right to Work is at Death's Door. What will its legacy be? Hey, Simon. Hey, thanks for having me. And Rick Pluta, senior capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network and co-host of It's Just Politics. Hello, Rick. Hello, Zoe. So, Simon, I want to start with you and your piece. What will Right to Work's legacy be? What did you find 10 years on? Well, I think first off, you know, this is really a mixed bag uh, for the state, the state's economy, and for workers as well. There's uh, labor economists have often struggled with sort of trying to isolate the effects of this law amongst all of the other things that have roiled Michigan's economy over the nearly a decade since it was last passed. And so uh, what we've seen is that labor economists say that there's a slight decline in wages, or some would argue that there's almost no effect on wages whatsoever. Uh, Michigan's workforce and the percent of its workforce that has been a member of a union has been in decline for decades and decades, since the 1960s. And while it has continued to decline under right to work, it hasn't declined quite as quickly as it did before the law was enacted. But what we are seeing, and what I reported on this story, is that the percentage of Michigan's workforce that is covered by a union, uh, but isn't paying union dues, has increased quite significantly, uh, almost doubled. And so uh, this is the result of right to work, is that uh, you don't have to pay union dues. You don't have to pay a fee if you decline to join the union and you're working in a union workplace. And so as a result, these individuals are able to collect the benefits of working in a union workplace without having to pay. And I want to dig into all of those numbers that you have been digging into. But Rick, talk to me a little bit about what those in favor of right to work say, what Republicans say about the rationale for the economy. Oh, sure. It it sorts into sort of the basic message of people who are for right to work, as they call it, worker freedom, that people shouldn't be forced to pay union dues for a service that they don't want. And, you know, the the flip side, of course, is you know, whether you say you want it or not, you're still getting the benefits of union representation. And you really can't carve out one part of that, which is the benefits of negotiating contracts with the other parts of it. I mean, the point of a union is it's a union. It's a bunch of people getting together to uh, advocate for a, uh, you know, for a particular benefit. And Democrats, union supporters say? That they call people who don't pay union dues, who opt out of that uh, part of union dues, uh, people who are taking advantage of the right to freeload, that they're getting all kinds of benefits that uh, come with being part of a bargaining unit. But when you opt out of paying for those benefits, then you're getting something that everyone else is paying for, but that you're not. 
Simon, let's turn back into the numbers. Um, And I'm quoting here from your piece. The proportion of Michigan workers who are union members dropped from 16.3% to 14%. So that's 2.3 percentage points in the decade from 2012 to 2022. In the prior decade, it had fallen twice as much. Did that surprise you? Uh, Not necessarily. I think that there's a a lot of factors that determine whether someone wants to be part of a a union shop or not. One of the things, too, is social pressure. I talked to union workers who said that they've had very few people drop out of unions since the enactment of right to work. And that's because, in part, if you drop out of the union and you're on the factory floor, the union members are going to refuse to associate with you. You're going to be isolated from the workplace because you're not a part of that union. At the same time, there's other uh, unions that have been hit harder, people in, in other sectors such as healthcare or, or food service, because there's not that same sort of bond and social structure that's been in place for decades and decades like you've seen from the United Auto Workers. Rick, compare that to 1964 when nearly 45 percent of Michigan's workforce were in a union. I, I, I think a lot of it speaks to the uh, social pressure that uh, Simon was just talking about that, you know, I mean, there's there's a whole culture that surrounds union membership. There are union halls where people go, you know, not just to get together for meetings, but, you know, they're booked for weddings and bar mitzvahs and, and things like that. It's uh, I'm sort of intrigued by this part. Uh, this had to be a challenge, Simon, that it's axiomatic that when you're checking into a particular economic policy, and I would say that, you know, having right to work or repealing right to work falls into that category, that you're comparing it to all other things being equal, but all other things are never equal. No, exactly. And I think that that's the struggle for a lot of the people who are trying to quantify these effects. You know, we've had outsourcing with the uh, inception of NAFTA in the 1990s and uh, automation on automotive lines. And all of these things had a much bigger impact. Uh, one of the laborists, uh, labor economists I talked to, Harry Katz, who's a, uh, he works on, he looks and studies collective bargaining at Cornell University, told me that the simple threat from management and manufacturers to if you unionize, we're just going to close down this factory and move this overseas or maybe automate these production lines has been often a threat enough to prevent unionization in some workforces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You note also the Great Recession, globalization, these broader economic issues that are variables in determining whether or not right to work was successful or detrimental, depending on whether you support it or not. Yeah. And I think um, one of the, the example that I, I turned to at the beginning of the story is a new union that's attempting to form at a credit union branch outside of Grand Rapids. It was literally just 12 employees. Seven of them voted in favor, five voted against. And here, this is where I think um, a lot of the effects of right to work are felt strongest because only half the people voted uh, and only ha- a little more than half, seven of those employees are going to be paying dues. But the other five, they're going to get the benefits of whatever's negotiated, but they won't be paying dues. And so this is something that hits unions organizationally directly. This is revenue that they don't receive, and it's direct power in terms of that monetary support and political power that they don't have access to them. And yet, if and when Governor Whitmer signs these bills, life is going to change. Yeah, certainly. I think that uh, unions are going to see a significant bump in revenue. I'm not certain as to legally what will happen to people who are already opted out of the unions. I think that might be a better question for uh, a labor attorney. But I think that, yeah, definitely unions now, if they get a foothold in a workplace and they make a particular employer a union shop, then they get the whole pie instead of just a slice of it. From the economic aspect also, that um, I just remember this from the time when I was younger and I worked in a, in a factory, that progressive managers actually would 
build working conditions and uh, salary schedules around trying to avoid becoming a union shop and dealing with all the complexities that uh, that come with that. And so you had workers who were benefiting from the fact that unions exist without ever, you know, even being approached to, uh, you know, to join a union. Yeah. And I mean, I think we've seen also automakers uh, take other steps to try to avoid having to rely solely on a unionized workforce, particularly in GM and their increasing use of temporary workers, the temp workers who aren't eligible to join the unions. Uh, There's an increasing reliance on those folks because they're a lot cheaper to use as a manufacturing workforce. That's Simon Schuster. He is political reporter at MLive and Rick Pluta, senior capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. So let's jump into the politics surrounding right to work. Michigan has always been known as a worker state, right? The history of unions is strong in this state. And so a little over 10 years ago, December of 2012, when Republicans passed right to work with no committee hearings, right, took it right to the House, right to the Senate. Uh, Rick Snyder signed it. There was no huge signing ceremony like there likely will be when Governor Whitmer repeals, uh, signs the repeal of right to work. Rick, just put into context what this means for Michigan politics in 2023. Well, I was there when um, you you know, when right to work passed and it was it was bedlam. The Capitol was filled with people, you know, banging on the uh, on, on the rails in the corridors and, and, and stuff like that, chanting union slogans and singing uh, union songs. And don't forget that Rick Snyder, when asked about right to work when he was running, said that it was not on his agenda. I mean, he basically dodged the question. And then as the issue got pushed, uh, you know, further and further along, you know, he said, well, now it is on my agenda. And, uh, you know, and he signed it. And a lot of Progressive Republicans and, and certainly Democrats and union members who'd maybe voted for Republicans felt uh, felt betrayed by uh, by that particular action. But a lot of conservative organizations, Republican organizations, have resented the fact that unions existed because union dues would be sent to you know help. Democratic candidates, because the Democratic Party is aligned with unions. The Republican Party is aligned with union skeptical, union um, opposed candidates. And a lot of times, along with union dues, that there was at least an expectation that union members would uh, you know, donate to political action committees and things like that. And Simon, if you were not prolific enough in your digging into Right to Work this week, you also published another piece called In Right to Work Repeal, a big win for Democrats' biggest donors. What'd you find? Well, if you look at the top 10 donors to Democratic legislative campaigns of of folks who are currently in the legislature now, six of those top 10 donors are uh, PACs that are funded solely by union members. So it's really hard to sort of overstate the financial impact, and not only the financial impact of... uh, unions in democratic politics, but just how central they are to democratic politics themselves. I mean, this is the largest constituency that's present at uh, democratic state conventions. These are folks who are not also volunteers. They go and knock doors and make phone calls on behalf of democratic candidates. And considering how razor thin the margins are in terms of democratic majorities right now in the state legislature, uh, unions will readily say that with, and the legislature, legislators themselves, 
that without the help and support of unions, Democrats would not have the trifecta control of government that they have now. And, you know, maybe an alternative indicator is that if you look at Democratic campaigns and especially Democratic conventions that choose statewide candidates, very often they turn into competitions between the United Auto Workers versus the Michigan Education Association versus the leadership of the uh, AFL-CIO to try and determine who the nominees are going to be. Was there ever then a possibility, Simon, that once Democrats took control, that they would not repeal right to work. I would have been shocked if they didn't go to it uh, and go to repeal it, because I think that this is something that was behind closed doors and meeting after meeting to say this is on our priority list. But I think it also speaks to the political divisiveness of this issue and the fact that it's not uh, a, a, an issue or, or policy that has easily won broad support, like, say, some of these uh, gun violence reform measures that are currently moving through the legislature, because, uh, you know, I, I follow the governor quite closely. It's part of my beat at MLive. Mm -hmm. And I've never once heard her say publicly since it became apparent that Democrats are going to control state government that she, is, that she wants to repeal uh, right to work. In my interview with her, she says, I don't think anyone is going to be surprised about my stance on that issue. But she's always avoided making that soundbite happen because she's, uh, you know, a very savvy politician. But I think that there was uh, never any doubt that this is something that was on Democrats' agenda. But let's dig into that. Why would she not say that? You say because she was a savvy politician, but explain why. I think that right to work is one of those things where, you know, like pro-life and pro-choice, where a, a certain word has taken hold and a certain impression in the public has gone, uh, you know, gone on about the effects of, th of this legislation, and it doesn't message well uh, for Democrats who support it. I mean, uh, the idea of worker freedom, the idea of whether you can, should be able to decide whether or not you want to join the union. If you're not a member of a union, which an increasingly small proportion of Michigan's workforce is, it's hard to argue that, you, that it's good not to have that choice, uh, just on a superficial level. There's also a psychological aspect to politics and negotiating, even within the Capitol, even about stuff where it seems like the result is ordained, like you know, signing right to work. And Senate Republican leader Eric Nesbitt, for example, has pointedly said that uh, once right to work is signed, that is a signal to Republicans and Republican constituencies that uh, Gretchen Whitmer is not serious about bipartisanship, and that will change the tenor of negotiations on uh, other issues going forward. Is that actually going to happen, though, or is that something you have to say when you're the minority party or the opposition party? I'm not entirely sure on that point, but I think that one of the uh, wrinkles in this, in the development and the passage of repealing right to work that was probably something the governor didn't anticipate was the inclusion of appropriations yes. in these bills that <laughs> yes. makes them referendum proof yes. because she has said and, and, put on and put on policy papers and said on, in a state of the state address that she's not going to sign legislation that becomes referendum proof by including an appropriation in it. And, it's, and by, it seems by all means that she's going to sign this legislation and it's going to be referendum proof. And, you know, for these core policies that Democrats really care about, she's willing to compromise on that principle. She reverted to the uh, she reverted to the uh, Rick Snyder line on uh, referendum proofing, saying that uh, referendum proofing and refusing to sign bills that include it was not, not on, on her, her agenda. agenda. Which raised quite an eye again from folks who had been covering this issue since 2012. Um, very quickly, we've only got a minute or so left. So, Simon, we assume that this will likely all get done, wrapped up, done and dusted, signed before the legislature goes on spring break? 
it, it certainly seems like that's their objective, and it certainly seems like that's going to happen. And to show just how, Democrat, how committed Democrats are, they've delayed passing this completely through the legislature so that they can have a Senate bill instead of a House bill for half of the right to work appeal so that every Democratic senator's name is on it as a co-sponsor so that they can get a little bit of the credit themselves. I think that that just shows exactly how central uh, unions are to Democratic politics and remain there even though they've declined as a presence within Michigan's economy. That is Simon Schuster of M Live. You can read much of his work looking into Right to Work all this past week at MLive.com. Simon, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. And Rick Pluta, Senior Capital Correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network and co-host of It's Just Politics. Rick, as always, thank you. Thank you. And before we end today, another big piece of legislation moved forward into law this week. Yesterday in Lansing, Governor Whitmer signed a bill adding LGBTQ protections into the state's Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act. In a crowded room, supporters stood, clapped, and cheered as Whitmer signed the legislation. LGBTQ activists have been seeking the expansion since the Civil Rights Act was first adopted in 1976. I am so proud to be here, and I am excited to put our state on the right side of history. You ready? Adding sexual orientation and gender identity protections to the state civil rights law was an early priority of Democrats when they took control of the state legislature this year. The new law lets complaints be filed alleging discrimination against LGBTQ people in employment, housing, education, and access to public accommodations. Before the law and a ruling this past summer by the Michigan Supreme Court, you could be fired from a job or denied a place to live in Michigan for being gay. Former Republican Representative Mel Larson was on stage during the bill signing. Larson is one of the original sponsors of the civil rights law that was adopted more than 40 years ago. He says expanding the law is, quote, long overdue. The intent of the Civil Rights Act was to cover all citizens in Michigan, and that kind of closes the loop today, so uh, pleased. But this may not be the final word. David Coleman is an attorney for conservative causes. He expects the new law will be challenged by faith-based organizations. If you're a Catholic church or you're a mosque or you're a synagogue, I think you have the right to choose employees who agree with your particular religious faith. And under Elliot Larson now, with these new categories, they have put in place a process to try to attack those rights. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, who attended the bill signing, says she's ready to defend the law in court if necessary. And that is It's Just Politics for today. I am Zoe Clark. Have a wonderful weekend. Let's talk again next Friday.